Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. (laughs) Yes, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. Uh, Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast for our very first show of the year. And to all our wonderful, loyal Radiotherapy listeners, welcome to 2021. It's only it's only been six weeks since we last chatted, but boy, have there been there have been some changes since then. Uh, not least a new incumbent in the White House with a history-making VP. Uh, but one thing that hasn't changed yet is Triple R's commitment to being COVID safe. Uh, so despite our long run of donut donut days, it's still little old me in the studio here. This time, gazing fondly at Panel Beater on the other side of the desk. Good morning, Panel Beater. Oh, good morning, Doctor Nick. So great to be back, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic to be back in the studio. Yes. Very nice to see you in person in the flesh. Yeah. Yeah, it's been ages. Uh, of course, the big medical story around the world remains COVID-19. I mean, here in Australia, we're, we're in that privileged position of having very little circulating virus, but um, with vaccines are on the brink of being delivered. So today's show, we're going to take a leaf out of Marinara's book and t- do a deep dive. That was a very bad pun. Sorry about that. <laughs> Uh, we're d- taking a deep dive into the world of COVID vaccines. Uh, Prudence Steer will be taking us through vaccine hesitancy, what it means and where it comes from, what, if anything, we can do about it. And misdiagnosis will be looking at vaccine access in countries less fortunate than Australia uh, and whether the world will live up to its promise of equity. And first up, my guest this morning is Professor Victor Gekara from RMIT University. And he's an expert in the technologies and logistics of transportation, warehousing and distribution, something which is absolutely core to this vaccine success. And he'll help us look at the practicalities of the vaccine program, both here and abroad. But before we talk to the good professor, we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Panel Beta, uh, going off the COVID topic for a moment, I'm going to ask you a question here. Mm-hmm. What do the names Lovan, Prozac and Zactin all have in common. They're brand names, aren't they, Dr. Nick? They are, and they are brand names of the same chemical. And that chemical is fluoxetine, the antidepressant. So most people will know it as Prozac, but many people who've taken that medication will have been given brands like Lovan or Zactin instead. There's one important difference that I think, for trivia nuts out there, Prozac of those three is actually in the English Oxford Dictionary. Is that right? Yes. So it's become a, a brand name like uh, Hoover or, um, you know, Kleenex yeah. um, that has entered into the vernacular, as has Viagra, by the way. Yes. So the, I, I'm not surprised Viagra's there. I'm slightly surprised with Prozac. Mm, Prozac uh, Nation. I'll have, to, I'll have to do some research and see if there are any other drug names. Do you know off the top of your head, apart from Viagra and Prozac? They're the I, only two I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it would be easy to imagine that some 
some well-known brands like Lipitor might come into standard use. The reason we're talking about this is as of tomorrow, February the 1st, Australia have a groundbreaking new legislation which says that all prescriptions will have to be under the proper chemical name, not the brand name. Uh, And already my computer software has been changed. (laughs) I click on someone who used to be taking Lexapro, which is a brand name for a different antidepressant, and on my prescription, spat out by the printer, it says escitalopram. Is there, is there um, you know how there's autocomplete on your phone if you're doing a text or on your computer? Is it autocomplete when you're putting in a prescription? Because there's some pretty long chemical names there, Dr. Nick. Yes, there is an autocomplete, absolutely right. And, there's, there, and there are, of course, risks as with any of these database things. And I had the wonderful example of a patient where the doctor clicked on the button for escitalopram when what he actually meant to click on was a, a, a drug for stomach ulcer. Um, called isomeprazole, and instead of giving the guy something for his acid, he gave him something for his mood disorder. But um, fortunately, all was well for that patient. Now, the reason we're doing this, um, what do you reckon, PB? What, a, what, a, what would be the rationale for making this change? Um, it's got to have something to do with managing risk, I imagine. Yes, so risk is certainly one of them. Uh, Funny enough, when um, I sat on a government committee about this sort of thing over 20 years ago, I tried to get this brought in uh, and fell down because, of course, the pharmaceutical manufacturers want their brand name to be up front. So the people are only Mm. asking for Lipitor, not Atorvastatin, or they're only asking for Lexapro, not Escitalopram. So we lost out to the pharmaceutical manufacturers over 20 years ago. There are two main reasons for it. One of them, of course, is financial. Um, The massive upsurge in proper name prescribing in the UK in the last 30, 40 years has probably saved the National Health Service something over £7 billion. That's got to be good. That's a lot of money, isn't Mm. it? Just for switching to a different brand name. Um, And it's really important for people to understand that all of the brand names in countries like Australia and the UK have to be bioequivalent. So they're tried, tested, proved. There may be tiny difference in what are called the excipients. These are the other little supporting chemicals that go in drugs. So every now and then you get someone who's highly sensitive to a particular ingredient who needs a brand name, but nearly all of us will be just as okay with the cheaper version. So money is one thing. But the other thing is this confusion. So if someone goes to the pharmacy and one day they're given a, a, a script which says Lovan on it, the next day they get Zactin, they don't know they've got the same drug. Whereas mm-hmm. if it's all called fluoxetine, they know what they're getting. Right, and the risk there to manage is that potentially they do think they're two separate drugs and they may actually do a double dose. And we have seen that happen. People rummage through the cupboard and they don't realise they've got mm. two of the same because they've got different names and each says one in the morning and so they double up. That's yeah, it. one's pink, one's green. And that's, yeah, it. And that's the one thing we haven't yet sorted out is to make sure that every version, say, of your statin, your cholesterol drug, looks the same size, shape and colour, because most of my patients, when I say to them, now what pills are you taking? They don't tell me the name of the pills. They say, I take two little white ones in the morning and that purpley green one in the evening. (laughs) (laughs) So so if we could get get this colour, size and shape sorted out, that would be lovely. So just for people who are listening who are using any medication, you may get a little shock when you walk into your uh, doctor's office and ask for a new script because it may look different. The name may have changed. It's actually shocked a few doctors (laughs) who didn't realise that their computer software had changed (laughs) and they're looking rather bleakly at these prescriptions being spat out of their printer, wondering what's going on. What's the? How would you characterise the backlash from the pharma? Uh, It's... it's, this must have already been done because this was legislated last year. I've 
I've been off that committee for over 20 years now, so I wasn't involved in those negotiations. I imagine there was a little pushback <laughs> from the drug companies who I'd be quite certain weren't happy about this. Yeah. Uh, but this is the reality of the modern world. To me, it's got to be a good thing. It's going to save money, hopefully save medication mistakes. It's got yeah. to be a win-win. Yeah. Um, so there we go. There's the non-COVID news for today. 1st of February, tomorrow, your medications may come under a different name, uh, but it's all the same stuff. Uh, very shortly, we're going to be talking to Professor Victor Gakara, an expert in the logistics of the transportation of things like COVID vaccines. He'll be coming up in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. On the line, we're really lucky to have Professor Victor Gikara. Victor, are you there? Yes, I am. Dr. Nick, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for sparing the time this Sunday morning to talk to us. Um, before we leap into the topic, I probably need you to explain who you are, what sort of work you do, because I've never come across a professor of logistics <laughs> and stuff like that before. So can you just explain what your expertise is? Yes, uh, th- thanks a lot for having me. And so, as you said, my name is Victor Gekara. I'm a professor at RMIT University, and I specialize in supply chain and logistics, particularly in the transportation aspect of things. And I'm the director of the Global Transport and Logistics uh, Research Group uh, within the College of Business and Law. And so the work that we do and the research that we conduct is really about trying to understand uh, more about ways in which we can enhance the um, uh, efficiency and the productivity of uh, transportation and uh, the efficiency of supply chain generally. So, you know, ranging from infrastructure to, um, you know, to the capacity in, in terms of the facilities for transportation, storage, and the skills aspect of it. Uh, so broadly, it's really um, expertise around transport and logistics and supply chain uh, capacities. And, and normally I would think, why on earth is a doctor talking to someone about logistics and supply chains and that sort of thing? But pretty much everybody listening will be familiar that the first vaccine we're likely to receive here in Australia and the first vaccine, one of the first that's been rolled out around the world is the, is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which has this peculiar property that it needs to be kept very, very cold. And so that yeah. creates all sorts of logistical issues. So perhaps we can start talking about that particular particular vaccine. Can you just step us through a little bit what the issues are with managing a vaccine that needs to be kept at minus 70 degrees? Uh, Well, the the first issue that you come across uh, when you're considering these kind of characteristics is, do you have um, the appropriate equipment to transport and to store uh, this type of vaccine at... um, at minus 70 degrees. And in many countries, and we're talking about Australia in this particular case, there, you know, there are areas where these facilities uh, are available um, and are accessible, but there are areas that are much more remote where the vaccine will need to be um, stored, uh, transported, um, stored, and further distributed to the remote areas. 
I think the consideration of the temperatures in some of these places um, is, is a big issue, um, and therefore we have to seriously think about the infrastructure that we have. So can I just ask, sorry to interrupt, but just talking about the transportation, what sort of vehicle can keep something at minus 70? How on earth do we do this even in a developed country like Australia, let alone in a developing country? That's a very good question, Dr. Nick. Um, It's not much about the vehicle that transports this type of vaccine. It's about the inbuilt... Either the inbuilt um, containers, uh, specially built, custom built for this type of transportation, um, or I, I mean, what price has done? Let me just take you through, uh, if, if that if that's okay, the the supply chain that Pfizer has put yes, in place. Yes, Yes. So, so, so I mean, most of these vaccines would be. Uh, brought in from uh, from the U.S. Um, and and so they come in what what are referred to as um, the the Pfizer thermal uh, shippers, and then these are custom built transportation units that are meant to keep the vaccine at that temperature. So they'll be transported via what you know what Pfizer uh, has struck deals with uh, transport partners, strategic transport partners. Mainly these are uh, FedEx and DHL, so they're transported transported to either a point of use or a point of distribution. Now, at the point of distribution, um, you have a number of options. So the point of distribution, point of use, you have a number of options of storing these, these vaccines. One could be ultra-low freezers, which have the capability to store these vaccines up to six months at the appropriate temperatures, and these are available commercially. The second one is the, uh, obviously, the visor thermal shippers that it comes in, and these are able to store the vaccines for up to 30 days. Okay. And then finally, you've got the refrigerated units that are normally uh, available in hospitals, um, in, in, in major hospitals, and those can store the vaccines up to five days. So let's talk about those ultra-cold fridges. Who actually yeah. has those? I certainly don't have one in my kitchen. <laughs> the ultra-low freezers, um, these are commercially available. Uh, so, you know, governments would have to arrange for the, the, the acquisition of this. However, what the Australian government has done, um, uh, okay, Nick, what the Australian government has done is to strike deals, agreements with uh, Lynn Fox and, and, and DHL uh, to, to, to make sure that they've got, they, they develop the capacities. And therefore, DHL and, and, and Lynn Fox are in the process of preparing these ultra-low freezers within their vehicles and the distribution centers to, to, to be able to, to store these vaccines effectively. So is the idea that the longer-term storage will be within vehicles, not within fridges on site? Because I, w- I wanted to ask you the question, do, do any of the major centers, for instance, in uh, Melbourne here at the Alfred Hospital, for instance, do they actually have already freezers that go down to that sort of temperature, or is this a whole new technology they'd have to invest in? This is, this is they would have um, what, what normally what this kind of hospitals would have are normal what we call the, what I refer to as the common refrigeration units. And these um, do not store up to the 
the minus 70 degrees. So yes. what we are talking about is new technology that is going to be acquired. However, so just to say a little more about the technology, the, the supply chain that we were talking about earlier on, the vaccine, although it requires the, seven, the minus 70 degrees, can be transferred at the point of distribution or the point of use. So say, for example, a medical center or, or, a, or a hospital, it can be transferred into the refrigerated units, which mm. are common and can, can be stored at two to eight degrees for five days. Yes. So in a sense, what you're saying is that you transfer them from the ultra-low freezers or the Pfizer thermal shippers to this common, commonly available unit in hospitals and, 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 and health centers for up to five days, thus allowing for the time to then uh, uh, you know, flexibly distribute them to, to, the, to, the, uh, to the users. And the other thing which was of great concern to me was a report I read out of Northern Ireland that even once this vaccine has thawed out and been made ready to use, it is very fragile uh, and easily damaged, even by being bumped or knocked around. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, I've, I've, I've read, I've read the, um, the same document uh, report that you're talking about, Dr. Nick. And, and yes, I... I, I to some extent, I agree that it, it's highly fragile, like most, you know, most medicines are. This is probably more, more in that case. But then um, I do not think that just bumping it slightly is going to affect the integrity of the vaccine. And I think that is why, you know, it, these vaccines are meant to be carried in specially designed containers, um, to avoid that kind of um, shock uh, in in the transportation in the in the handling, so the the I mean I I, I agree that it's fragile, especially if you're talking about a, a you know a container, even the uh, the, the 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 bottle that has uh, that has uh, been kept at minus seventy, even a slight bump might be problematic. However. Someone coming asking you to make them another cup of tea this morning. <laughs> no, I hit the wrong button on my <laughs> keyboard. So, so, so yes, uh, much as I see, I, you know, I see that there is um, that level of fragility. I, I don't think that. Uh, I think the report probably um, overstated. That, that, okay. that level of fragility. And, and the other thing that happened overnight that I read this morning was that a freezer in Seattle broke down. <laughs> oh, dear. So <laughs> suddenly they were putting a call out in the middle of the night. Anyone want a vaccine? Pop in now. And it's, it, to my mind, completely astonishingly, they it kind of sold out within minutes. I think that's amazing. But that just yeah. really yeah. points to how complicated this rollout is, doesn't it? it it's very complicated. I mean, it's... Uh, it's, uh, it's it's in a way telling us um, where one how complicated it is, how complex it is, and the fact that it's um, it's unprecedented. I mean, we haven't had to handle this kind of scale before, and everybody is nervous. Every everybody is on edge, and this is where the point that I always make in these kinds of discussions about the skills to handle um, these kind of processes and these kind of programs comes into, 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 you know, into importance. Uh, so, for example, we are talking about how fragile it is to handle 
um, you know, people have to be made aware, the people that are going to administer this and to transport this and to store this and to handle this have to be made aware of how fragile it is, how delicate these vaccines can be. So, so that's a lot of training that needs to be done for an awful lot of people around the country. How are yeah. we doing that? Any idea how we're managing to upskill the workforce? Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't have uh, the, the specific knowledge around that, but I can agree with you that we need to do a lot more training than, than we would normally be anticipating. So, you know, just to give you an example, in the U.S., uh, they're thinking of, because of the, you know, the capacity and the facilities question that you asked earlier on, they're thinking of even using um, um, retail uh, chains um, uh, like Costco and Walmart uh, to store and, and administer this vaccine. Now, the question then for me, which is critical, is do you have specially trained personnel, people within those, uh, those, those stores, to, to handle this. The, well, the reason why yes. they're thinking of doing this is because they storage facilities there. Storage facilities and probably space as well, because we've we've been doing some logistics. Um, because you're probably aware that um, we've been asked to put in expressions of interest as vaccine providers. As, as a yeah. general practice, we looked at the logistics of how we would do this uh, yeah. with the current current requirements of safe um, physical distancing and so on. It is actually very difficult because you've got to have space where you could put someone yeah. who's got some reaction or an allergic response. You need medical staff on hand in case there's a severe reaction. You need plenty of space to keep people for the required time afterwards. Correct. Uh, and that actually requires quite a lot of trained staff. It requires quite a lot of admin staff. We did some, we did some figures and we worked out for a three-and-a-half-hour uh, vaccine clinic, the sum profit to our clinic would be minus $30.25, <laughs> which is not really a great business deal. But it really points to what you're saying of training for people. If it's hard enough here in Australia, I just want to move overseas before we finish. Um, We're not really expecting this complicated frozen vaccine, which is also the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is around about 25 Australian dollars a pop. Um, We're not really expecting that one to go into developing countries. Uh, We're looking more at the AstraZeneca type vaccines, which are almost a tenth of the price uh, and only need refrigeration. But even so, refrigeration is a big issue. What, What are going to be the logistical challenges in developing countries to get COVID vaccines safely out to large numbers of the population massive um as you said the astrazeneca vaccine is probably the one that is going to be rolled out more in in these countries and we are talking about large populations um uh you know in the developing countries but i mean if you look at for example just just to give you an example in on the african continent africa is very sparsely populated. It's a huge continent with, um, with uh, you know, po- population sparsely, you know, located across the continent. Now, the second, the second uh, problem that you have to consider there is the infrastructure, the accessibility, the road. Um, we talked about transporting these vaccines from the point of manufacture um, to the point of use or point of distribution. Now, uh, my country of origin is, is, is in Kenya, and therefore I can speak with some confidence about the distribution transportation challenges. 
Now, if, for example, you're transporting this vaccine to the point of distribution, which is in Nairobi or in Mombasa or in Kisumu, these are regional cities, then you have to think about how do you transport the same to the point of use in the regional areas and then further distribution to the administration centers. Now, you obviously have to think about refrigerated uh, vehicles or trucks, small aircraft to transport these vaccines. And in some of, of these places, you don't have, um, you know, um, uh, good roads that lead to these, these places. Um, and, you even don't on, have, and even once you get to the end yes. point, you need trained staff to administer. Yes, yes. Uh, you definitely need trained staff to administer to not just to administer, but to handle the vaccines themselves. As we said, they are fragile, and they need um, uh, care and, 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 and delicate handling. And so I think there's a, there's a huge problem. We are talking about this, you know, these kinds of problems in countries like Australia. You multiply that by probably 10 in some of these developing countries in Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia. And, 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 others. and Victor, I don't want to end on a gloomy note that <laughs> makes it all sound like it's absolutely completely impossible. Um, do, you, do you believe that we will overcome those obstacles in developing countries? I think we will. You see, what's happening, and, and uh, um, I've, been, I've been following the, Co- the COVAX uh, program that is supported by the WHO and many uh, of the wealthier countries are contributing to this. And even uh, pharmaceuticals like uh, Pfizer have committed to, 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 to support the distribution using their own supply chain. So um, Pfizer is talking about, um, you know, support, you know, supplying the, uh, the cooler boxes um, so part of the supply chain that I didn't uh, I didn't mention earlier on is the final um, mile distribution, where Pfizer has developed the what they call the cooler boxes, which are able to carry one to five thousand doses mm-hmm. and can store them up to ten days. So what if they are, they're basically briefcase sized and therefore can be used flexibly to to, to dis- distribute at the end. I think that we shall overcome. Uh, there's a lot of resources that are going to be required, and the, and, and but, but I, I, I think that with the programs that are being rolled out, um, we, we will definitely, you know, we have to. We have to overcome, yeah. We have to, we have to. And, and, and that would be a very good line in a song, We Shall Overcome, but someone might use that one day. Victor Gakara, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you online. We could have talked about this for the whole hour. Sadly, time is upon us. Um, thank you so much for making yourself available this Sunday morning. Thank you, Dr. Nick. Uh, thank you for having me. And, um, and um, hopefully we, you know, we, we make it work. Thanks. Thanks, Victor. That was Professor Victor Kakara from RMIT University. We'll have to have him back and find out whether his boundless optimism bears fruit down the track. Oh, goodness, I hope so. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. On the line now, we have Misdiagnosis. Good morning, Misdiagnosis. Good morning, Dr Nick. How are you? I'm extremely well. How's your Sunday morning going so far? Oh, it's fantastic. Got some scones in the oven and a pot of tea in front of me. 
perfect start to a weekend morning. Um, I was fascinated listening to Professor Kakara there talking about some of the logistics of vaccines and so on. So we're going to go on and talk now a little bit more about uh, vaccine access in developing countries, what this all means and so on. So tell us where you'd like to start. Oh, fascinating conversation with him just before. It's just so interesting with all those supply chains and all these bits and pieces that you don't think are important. And then all of a sudden, to go, oh my goodness, how are we going to get these vaccines out there? But to take it back to, I guess, a little bit more of the kind of very, very big picture about who's actually getting these vaccines. And I just thought I'd start with one of the quotes from the WHO director and the president of the European Commission, who at the start of this pandemic said... None of us will be safe until everybody is safe. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of where I wanted to lead off with this conversation because there was an article that was recently published um, in an economic journal in the United States that talked about how much money the global economy would lose, and not just because of COVID and what was going on, but by only vaccinating what they called economically advanced countries. Oh, so they've actually done some dollars and cents on that sort of different possibility of vaccinating the posh places and leaving everybody else unvaccinated and what would happen? Exactly, yeah. And it's a, it's a very interesting article. It's about 65 pages. There are a lot of equations in it. I will admit <laughs> that I did not understand 100% of it. Um, but um, from the bits that I did understand and sort of the take-home messages that they had from it, essentially they did some statistical modelling um, with... What would happen if, um, as you were saying, wealthy countries, so the uh, economically advanced countries, were vaccinated? And then the economically developing countries, they actually put some stats in what would happen if maybe 20% or even 50% were vaccinated, but not the entire country. And they came up with some pretty startling figures, Dr. Nick. Go on, let's t- t- throw it at me. I mean, I, I'm always terrified by these sort of global figures. People talk about millions and then billions and then trillions, and I just kind of glaze over and lose track. But tell me what they found. So essentially, the statistical modelling that they used, and this was this was if you vaccinated only 50% of the developing countries and the rest of the countries were fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. and they estimated loss, losses to GDP, so the gross domestic product, of the world in 2021, so just one year, at anywhere between $0.2 trillion to $2.6 trillion. I'm sitting here with my mouth hanging open, which doesn't work very well on radio. (laughs) So the the huge figures, I don't know about you, but I find anything over a million dollars or a billion dollars, it's very difficult to get your head around. But essentially, a trillion dollars is a thousand billion dollars. And this was if we vaccinated about 50% of these um, developing economies anyway. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because when we think about getting the vaccines out to people, you know, I think we all understand that we have a moral imperative to make sure that those who are at most need and those in countries that cannot afford to, you know, have bidding wars with Pfizer and this sort of thing, that they have access to the vaccines just from a moral standpoint but I guess this article brings in a new, interesting economic argument with it. Well, you'd have to say whatever the cost is of supplying the vaccines to developing countries, it surely isn't going to be how many trillion dollars did you come up with just there? So anywhere between 0.2 trillion to 2.6 and up to $6 trillion if those countries aren't vaccinated at all. Now, what they have um, estimated in terms of vaccinating the whole world uh, this is the manufacturing, distribution and the cost of the vaccines, $27.2 billion. 
So not even not even really a scratch on that six trillion that could be lost. A, a fraction of a trillion, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about what the, the current system is supposed to be to try and help get developing countries vaccinated, because the WHO have been coordinating this organisation called COVAX. Yeah, exactly. So COVAX was sort of, you know, sort of came out roughly about April last year, and essentially what it is is it's a platform to support research, development, and manufacturing of a wide range of vaccines and to negotiate the pricing. So what they so what they do, which is different to what, I guess, um, the individual manufacturing companies do, is they will support the research and development of up to 170 vaccine candidates at the moment with the knowledge that maybe 7 to 20% of those will actually work. And who's funding COVAX? So COVAX is funded by... Uh, so it's funded by countries that can fund themselves. So, for example, um, Biden, one of his first uh, sort of presidential decrees when he was in office was to pledge a large amount of something, something in the billions towards COVAX. I think Australia Um, pledged 80 million, is it? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, And, of course, they need, you know, significant amounts of (laughs) resources because what they're doing is they're trying to set up a system whereby... Once the, vaccine, once the vaccine has approval, instead of then needing to go through an entire new phase of setting up large labs to actually get these vaccines manufactured and on the ground, they're trying to set it up as they go with the knowledge that some of these vaccines will fail and some of them will work. And to, uh, in terms of actually delivering the vaccines to these countries, it's, it's something I struggle with here that developed countries have all been bidding like crazy, reserving doses mm, um, yeah. for the wealthier countries. And, and I struggle a little bit with the idea that Australia, with almost no circulating COVID, mm. is getting a sort of priority access, if you like, because we've been able to throw money at things like Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Mm. Um, I don't know whether you would agree with this, but it does make me wonder whether we should say, all right, well, we've got these millions of doses which are reserved for us. We should hand them over to some of our poorer neighbours. No, I I totally agree. And what COVAX is aiming to do with this is make sure that everyone who has signed up to COVAX, so that's the developing countries and the less economically developed countries, that once a vaccine has has been approved they will distribute up to 50% uh, enough vaccines for 50% of the population. But they started a figure of 20%, and their way of doing it is that no country will receive more than enough for 20% of their population until every country has received 20%. Now, 20% isn't a huge number, but if we look at the number of the vaccine stats at the moment of who has it, 16% of the world's population, so that's sort of the US, um, Australia, and um, a lot of the UK as well, has acquired 60% of the available vaccines so far. So, so far, there's a huge, huge disparity in which countries are actually getting them. And, Dr Nick, I agree with you. I think we have a moral imperative, as the President of the WHO said at the start of this pandemic, no one of us is going to be safe until we're all safe. This isn't going to go away just because we throw money at it. So, just to go back to those figures you just quoted, so less than 20% of the world's population in the wealthy country, 16%, have reserved or got first dibs on well over half of all the world's supply of these vaccines. 
That's correct. Yeah, yeah. It's Well, it's a slightly dispiriting um, piece of information. <laughs> I'm struggling to find a positive to end on here. Um, in your researches around COVAX and so on, did you get any sense that uh, there's light at the end of this particular complicated overseas vaccination tunnel? Look, Dr Nick, if I'm totally honest, I think what we need to do, despite there being a very strong economic argument for why we should do this, I think we actually need to turn away from the economics and turn more towards our humanity. You know, our globe is more separate but also more connected than ever before with social media and things like that. And I actually think we need to stop looking at how many trillions of dollars we're going to lose and just start looking at what we need to do as a world to come together and to fight this. I think that's a very noble sentiment. I have a nasty feeling that in a business sense, the trillions of dollars has more sway than global sentiment. But I appreciate your thoughts, misdiagnosis, and thank you very much. <laughs> it's lovely to talk to you. We'll look forward to having you in the studio next time, we hope. Oh, that would be lovely. That's if you can tear yourself away from the wards. Now you're no longer a medical student working hard. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for being on. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. On the line, we have Prudence Dear. Hi, Dr. Nick. Hi, PB. Here I am, bringing up the rear. <laughs> How lovely to hear your voice, Prudence. How are things for you? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Where, Sunday, where, actually, I love it. Where, where are you since we don't have you in the studio? Oh, I'm down in the Bayside, actually. Oh. Yeah, and not far from the beach. Okay. So, got a go. cup of tea and a dog on your lap? I've got a dog looking at me saying, it's time to go, you know, W-A-L-K. Um, <laughs> and, a, and a glass of water. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be out of here at 11. <laughs> okay, we'll put the dog aside and let's talk a little bit. So we've been talking yeah. vaccines all morning. And we have. One of the huge things that is always an issue with vaccines, even when they're tried and tested, is people's mm-hmm. uncertainty. And here we have a yeah. batch of brand new stuff. Um, what, do you reckon the, what do you reckon the issues are going to be here? Okay. Well, look, I mean, there are always kind of challenges around, you know, the what we call the acceptance and uptake of, of vaccines. And, and I think if we if we just start, though, with a baseline uh, in terms of Australia, you know, we are really kind of world-leading in terms of immunisation rates and vaccinations. I mean, you know, our kids up to five years old, we're getting like 90%, you know, immunisation rates. And, you know, um, adolescents for HPV, we're seeing, you know, vaccination rates around 80% and so on. So mm-hmm. Australia is pretty forward, you know, and quite leading in that respect. But just recently there was a quantum survey that looked at you know, asking people about their likelihood of taking taking the COVID vaccines. And although 80% of, of people, adults, said that they were likely to take the vaccine, there's been a lot of concern about safety. Um, and, in, and in some groups, like women in their 30s, over 40% of those respondents to that survey were concerned about the safety and I think yeah look that that's going to be actually quite a big issue it's one of of many I guess and And, so I just want to ask you with that particular survey because the um the um glee with which people take up a new vaccine is hugely dependent Mm. on how they perceive the risk so I remember when the first meningococcal vaccine came out uh pediatricians rushed in with their children and said give my child this vaccine because Mm. they knew meningococcal disease was catastrophic Uh, the vaccine was going to protect and everybody wanted to have it because the risk seemed huge, the protection important of course 
if that survey was done in the middle of our um, wave of COVID, more people would probably have said they would take it. When was that survey actually done? That was only about a week ago. Well, it got published about a week ago. Oh, okay. So, constant survey. Yeah. Because yeah. You'd, you'd think that maybe now that we're feeling a bit more relaxed in Australia about COVID, people might be more reluctant. So I'm quite encouraged by well, that. Well, yeah, look, I think, well, that is, I think that's a good point. But, I, you know, I also think that the information is crucial. So, I mean, there's a number of elements, I think, to, the, to what we, we need from campaigns. And we're seeing some of it already. You know, the government is now rolling out, you know, press releases, They've got some videos, um, and you know, even the, the prime minister has been talking this stuff up as well about you know we, we're delivering next month, you know, this month's now February. You know, who's going to be getting, um, you know, who's going to be first in line, etc. And what um, what the sort of um, actually what the World Health Organization they kind of cover three kind of key areas around how to promote and one is that you've got to have an, what's called an, an enabling environment which is to make it accessible and so we've been hearing about that in terms of the logistics let's get the material get the vaccines out out to the cities out to the rural communities and so on to local clinics where people can actually get to it and making it free of course is really important you don't okay, pay so, for it. <clears throat> so, so yeah. number one point is we have to make it relatively easy for people to get this okay. the easier you make it the better and you know like for example delivering it in workplaces as people go back to work or, you know, obviously, like, if maybe we don't going to give it to kids, but, you know, those sorts of environments where people are you know, grouped together, communities, and then, you know, creating the opportunity like, you know, Tuesday, everyone come along, get your vaccine. You know, it's, it's, it's easy and, and it's important to make it opt out rather than opt in. So, you know, assume and set the social norms so that the social influences are, well, oh, well, we're all meeting next week to go and get our vaccination. You know, we're all doing it. So let's normalise it. Mm-hmm. I think that's quite important. <clears throat> um, social messages as well from um, from people we respect. And again, I mean, uh, the ABC were promoting, uh, you know, a question and answers around the vaccines. And, you know, they, so they roll out Norman Swan and Sophie Scott and people like that, that you know, that the, the public know and tr- largely trust as, you know, as being reliable sources of information. So how important, so, so how important are influencers, both positive and, of course, mm, negative? Well, well, we we live in bubbles, don't we? Kind of social bubbles. So actually, we're very prone to biases um, from what we think is the norm. Um, so depending on which newspaper we read um, or what uh, influences we follow on Instagram or Facebook and so on, that, that we can assume that opinions expressed can often be kind of mainstream opinions when perhaps they're not. So there are. Um, again, there are risks if people aren't um, being particularly sort of, you know, uh, critical of their information sources. It's it's interesting how we get though. That's why we need those sort of high-profile kind of ambassadors in the community. Uh, interesting one I saw to, uh, a couple of days ago was there's a Brazilian rap artist. Did you see that one? A Brazilian <clears throat> rap artist. A Brazilian know, rap artist. Brazilian so, rap is not actually my core musical taste. Well. There you go. It's now time for a change. You can probably look it up. He'll be on YouTube. But he's, he, you know, he was, he's famous in Brazil, and obviously Brazil's got some big problems with COVID. <clears throat> and he's, he's rewritten his, one of his songs as a, as a positive message around vaccination. It's a very pro-vaccine one. And it's gone viral. So, you know, it's getting, most, it's getting information out there in perhaps 
you know, other ways. Um, but, yeah, we are very prone to those uh, cognitive biases. And I think, you know, one of the challenges, one of the big challenges I think we've got is that with the vaccines we've got currently, you know, what, what, what is the sort of social reasons for, for having the vaccine? And, you know, for many people, I think, we, you know, we need to perhaps understand, as, as again the Prime Minister said just the other day, that, you know, the COVID-safe measures are not going to cease. Yes. But, you know, we are still going to be using social distancing, wearing masks, etc. And that looks like, depending on how we get to understand what these vaccines are doing, there's probably still going to be quarantine. So even if we get a massive coverage of vaccine in, in, in Australia, some aspects of our lives are still not going to change. What is going to change? And this is where we're doing is that the likelihood of you being hospitalised or yes. the likelihood of you dying is going to be exceedingly small. So, so, so question then, should we make the vaccine compulsory? Should we just say we're, we're not interested in new doubters and hesitancies and so on? Uh, we're going to make this a compulsory thing for the public good. Uh, personally, I think that would be, I, I don't think that's a good idea to make these things compulsory, but you can make it compulsory perhaps as a requirement, you know, for, for first line, um, health professionals, for people working in aged care, for example, and so on. Um, but I still think there's still a problem, isn't it? If, if these current batch of vaccines, I mean, we're expecting probably some better ones that say to come along, which will have more, perhaps more effectiveness and, and proven effectiveness around preventing transmission, then um, we don't want to develop an, an, a, you know, a distrust in, in our health services and our government and the provision of vaccines. So we've got, I think it still has to be very much a, a voluntary thing at this, at this point. So we've used a kind of carrot and stick approach with some of the other vaccines, mm -hmm. uh, with children, for instance, being required to be vaccinated yeah. to go to childcare, that sort of thing. Uh, would you see a role for that, some sort of similar version, well, not just for yeah, healthcare again, workers, but I'm talking, you're yeah, not, not allowed to go to Coles unless you've had your vaccine? Well, I think you might, that might be a bit restrictive, but certain, I think, you know, certain occupations and industries. And, yeah, well, look, we've kind of seen it suggested, at least anyway, you know, that if you want to fly or something, a lot of airlines may actually require you to have the vaccination first. So, you know, there can be, you know, incentives, put it that way. I'm interested that I actually haven't seen, maybe it's because I, I live in the wrong bubble, but I haven't actually seen any negative um, sort of publicity about the vaccine from people who are upset about the whole concept. Have you, mm. have you come across much? I haven't seen a lot either, but I think that's probably, again, because of the way that so much of our kind of communications now are very focused on us, you know, that we, you know, I know they know that we, that, that probably you and I skip those sorts of um, sources of information. So we're not seeing, we're not seeing that. So I'm going to ask you the question, the, uh, the vaccine becomes available, you're the next in line for you know, oh, Group no, 1B yes, or absolutely. whatever it is, will you be having the vaccine? I want to be, yes, yes, for sure. Okay, myself included, I would definitely say I'm up for it as soon as it comes available. So yeah. uh, there you are, some positive role models. Uh, Prudence, dear, thank you very much for <laughs> talking welcome. to us this morning. Um, I, hope the dog, I hope the dog wasn't listening when you oh. said that it's nearly time for a walk, but there you are, I've said the word. So oh, you said the word now. Is the oh, tail wagging? It is. <laughs> All right. The ears are up. <laughs> when you go and deal with your, your four-footed friend, and hopefully next time Thank we'll you. see you here in the studio. It'll be lovely to get back into the studio.
studio. Perhaps we'll have a jab on the way in. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was Prudence Deer talking to us about vaccine hesitancy. Uh, it's time to wrap up. Just time to say thank you to our fabulous guest from earlier in the show, Professor Victor Kakara from RMIT University. And thanks also, of course, to our regular panellists, Misdiagnosis and just then Prudence Deer. And thanks as always to the indefatigable, I got that word right, panel beta for his contributions and keeping the show on the road. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.